Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Pastor Douglas Wilson entitled The Mythical Wall of Separation from the series Secular Jihad in America. Listen to the full series now, available on Canon Plus. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this conference. We thank you for all that you have given to us in the course of it. We pray you bless the remainder of it, this talk, and what goes on this evening. We would seek to glorify you in all things, and so we ask for this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, this talk is on the mythical wall of separation, the mythical wall of separation, and part of the purpose of this talk is to address that subject, but also to tie, tie everything together to talk about the relevance of all of this. What, what difference does it make? The separation of church and state is a subject that is about as muddled as a subject can get. Separation of church and state is an honorable and biblical doctrine. Separation of church, one government, and state, Another government is as honorable as the separation of church government and family government or separation of family government and civil government. They are distinct things, distinct entities created by God to function in the world according to their respective spheres. God assigns to each government what that government ought to be doing. The civil government is the is the ministry of uh, justice, the Church government is the ministry of word and sacrament of God's grace in the world. The family government is the ministry of health, education, and welfare. God has assigned tasks to different governments. And and these different spheres have different responsibilities. So consequently, the state does not have the responsibility to preach the gospel. The, The church does not have the responsibility to execute murderers, and so on. So there is a separation of um, responsibilities, separation of church and state. This is a biblical, this is an honorable doctrine. You find it in the Bible. You find it in the governance of Israel. In ancient Israel, there was a separation of church and state. What happened, for example, when the king went into the temple in order to offer up, uh, uh, offer a sacrifice? He was struck with leprosy because that was not the prerogative of the king to do. So you have separation of church and state, and there are a number of examples uh, of this. But this has been used, the phrase separation of church and state has been used in order to um, separate state, the state, the modern secular state, from all moral, religious, or theological considerations, which is that that's a separate question altogether. So does the separation of church and state, the distinct government of the church, the responsibilities of presbytery meetings and baptisms and when you schedule the service, you know, church government, does the separation of that from the questions of the laws that we make, wars we declare, uh, that sort of thing, that's a legitimate biblical separation. But does that mean that there, that the, that when, when it comes to secular governance, that there are no moral and ethical considerations which must be informed by the true religion, right? To separate church and state is a very different thing than separating God and state. Separation of God and state is impossible, is, is an impossibility because all, all political arrangements are religious establishments of some sort. Either the state will recognize a God above it, or that state, as I said in the previous talk, will be making an implicit or explicit claim to be God uh, itself. What is the highest authority in the life, in the lives of those governed? What is the highest authority past which there is no appeal? What, whenever you found that point, you found the God of the system. Whenever you find that point, you found the God of the system. So the God of the system is the one that doesn't, doesn't allow any appeal beyond it. And, and this is something we have to disentangle because, um, we've gotten to such a confused level that if, um, let's say uh, some, Christian parents objected to some pornographic book in the library of the local public school, there would be cries 
out, cries of outrage that these parents were trying to violate this, the wall of separation between church and state. But there's, there cannot be, think about it for a minute, there cannot be a separation of morality and state. There cannot be a separation of God and state. There can be a, a separation of church government from state government and ought to be a separation of those two governments. But those two governments at the same time ought to be communicating and talking with each other and, and informing one another. So let me give you an example. Uh, suppose... Suppose I won't make this entirely up, but I'll make it mostly up. Suppose a, a certain senator, uh, Snotwurst, uh, was. Um, uh, suppose that he got elected, and he was pressed with all the usual. He was under suspicion because he was a Catholic or something, and and so he was pestered during the campaign that are are you going to. Uh, not allow your personal morality to influence public policy decisions, right? And yes, any, any scrat ticked off all the boxes and he answered, he got a, a hundred on his little quiz. And then after the election, he was discovered to have $150,000 in cash in his refrigerator and, and it was pilfered from public monies and he's been harassed, sexually harassing a bunch of interns and so forth. And then he's caught and there's a press conference. And he comes out to the press conference. I'd love to see this. I'd love to see Senator Snotworst or someone like him to say, I promised during the campaign never to let my personal ethical convictions get in the way of how I behave once in office. I am personally opposed to theft. I am personally opposed to sexual harassment. But I took a vow that I would not let any of my personal convictions interfere <laughs> with anything I would do while on government time. So while on government time, I felt free. Not only did I feel free to pilfer from the public till, you made me promise to pilfer from the public <laughs> till. And that's an inconsistency because keeping my promises is a personal ethical consideration of mine. I'm not, there's certain tension in the position. Why, why is it that we are just arbitrarily selective on these things? In other words, personal moral convictions means you can't have your convictions against abortion, let's say, influence your vote. You can be, you, you can have your opposition to abortion come from this personal pretend mystical space, but it can't come from your faith. All right. If it comes from your faith, then you're, you're blurring this wall uh, of separation between church and state. This whole, this whole deal is hopelessly gummed up. And this is because when you're dealing with secularists, when you're dealing with um, uh, secular liberals and progressives, and that's another thing is the terminology. What are they progressing to? <laughs> we don't know where we're going, but we're making good time. <laughs> that makes no sense at all. But, but one of the things that makes these debates so exasperating is that they always cheat. They always apply to you standards that they don't apply to themselves. They, they just reserve to them, themselves the right to say this, this, and this are personal moral convictions that you cannot apply. These over here are personal moral convictions that we're going to require you to apply. Well, no, take the rule, apply it, and see what happens. Here, here's, another, here's an example of some of the inconsistency. Suppose... Going back to the talk about the Second Amendment, suppose you're getting to know your next door neighbor. You're trying to reach out and and be friendly in the neighborhood and, and you discover from the bumper stickers on their car who they voted for. And it was not who you voted for. And they are of the leftist, secular, liberal stripe. And so you have them over for a barbecue. And just to get the conversation started, you bring up the Second Amendment and... and <laughs> And your personal conviction that the Second Amendment allows for, allows you to keep and bear grenade launchers. <laughs> and, and you've had it up to here with the sissy NRA and their, their wimpy weapons. In fact, you want the kind of grenade launcher that as soon as they invent nuclear grenades, you can retrofit. <laughs> And you just bring this up to start it, and, and they, your neighbor goes white. Just, <laughs> I didn't know that moving to Idaho would involve this. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they go white. And, you say, and they say, no, 
That's not what the Second Amendment is talking about. That's not, come on, you know, and they appeal to you. And you say, applying the sauce for the goose, the sauce for the gander, well, don't you believe that the Constitution is a living document? This is what the Second Amendment means to me. may not mean that to you, but living document, basically the Constitution being a living document means that it's infinitely elastic, but it only stretches to the left. (laughs) Never stretches in other interesting creative directions. You know, why don't we say, I believe that, I think we ought to make the president the, the king. And they say, no, you, but, 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 you said the no, Constitution is a living document. All right. It's a living document. Now, you might think that these are far-fetched illustrations, but I I was reminded in the break after I I was trying to uh, talk about that restaurant case, it was, um, Nate reminded me in the break that that restaurant case was even more far-fetched than I had said. It was Ollie's Barbecue Pit. And Ollie, in uh, Ollie's, uh, Ollie was a real pill, right? Making the distinction between sin and crime and stuff. Ollie was a real pill. And the feds couldn't get him because he, in his barbecue pit, all the animals he served, he bought locally. And so they, they couldn't get him on the interstate commerce clause. So the, you know how they got him. They got him because some of the animals that he was serving to his customers had been fed by grain that other farmers had transported across state lines, right? So this is sort of the hyper-legalistic mind. And, and notice how stretchy the Constitution is at that point. I mean, that's they're, what they're saying is, look, we're going to get you. We're going to get you, and we're going to come up with some justification for getting you after the fact. Well, if we were to seriously propose that sort of that same sort of hermeneutic with the Constitution, it would allow for all sorts of crazy right wing um, things. But the, don't fear, because the Constitution does not stretch in that direction. Now, the founders of the Constitution knew that the document they wrote was not a document for the ages. It needed to be adapted for changing times. And that's why they had the process that allowed for amendments. If you if you. If a new circumstance comes up, then amend the Constitution openly and honestly. Don't start tinkering around with it and lying about it. So let's talk about the separation of church and state, separation of morality and state, separation of God and state. Look no further. In order to understand that the contemporary mantra that's cited, that separation of church and state means absolutely no reference to God or the church or the truth of the Christian religion in in any way that might influence uh, public policy. We know that this is false. Look no farther than the Declaration of Independence. We are endowed not by the evolutionary process, but by our creator, with certain inalienable rights. Now, someone might say, I, you know, I got you there. You're quoting the Declaration of Independence, not from the Constitution. The Declaration, they might go on to say, has no legal status in America, uh, in American law. But that, that would be, what, what is the French phrase for that? Lay false, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to double check with Francis. People say the Declaration has no legal status in American law. It's just not right. The Declaration of Independence has been, has been cited repeatedly by the Supreme Court in the history of Supreme Court decisions as part of the fundamental law of the United States. And this, is, of course, is not likely to have happened recently, but in the history of our nation, as we developed our unwritten constitution and our own common law traditions, the Declaration was known and understood to be part of the fundamental organic law of the United States. The United States Code annotated, according to John Eidsbo in his book, Christianity and the Constitution, includes the Declaration as part of the organic law of the United States. And that means that we are endowed by our creator, with certain inalienable rights. Our rights cannot be alienated from us, cannot be separated from us, and they cannot be separated from us by the government because the government didn't give them to us. Our creator gave them to us, and we need to understand, if we if we come away from this conference understanding nothing else, understand that Romans 13 is not a blank check that God gives to tyrants. 
That's not what Romans 13 is talking about. In Romans 13, where he says, obey the existing authorities and so forth, he says three times that the civil authority are God's deacon, God's minister, God's servant. And Paul is teaching us that there's an authority above the civil magistrate, and we must render obedience to the civil magistrate because of God's position. If if God isn't Lord over the civil authority, then we have no basis at all for obeying anyone doing anything. So, so consequently, Christians should render dutiful obedience to the civil magistrate, in fact, more than anyone else, precisely because we acknowledge that no human authority is absolute. No human authority is absolute. And that means that it's not going, let's say we get to the point of resistance where there's some sort of showdown. The civil magistrate When the civil magistrate comes after us for our civil disobedience, where we're continuing to proclaim the gospel, or we refuse to shut down the prayer meeting, or we refuse to shut down the Christian school, and they say, you must shut down the Christian school, Romans 13, they're going to be astonished at who it is that's resisting them. It's not the normal scoff laws, right? If you're just a regular um, scoff law and you poach when you feel like it and you cheat on your taxes when you feel like it, according to your own predilections, according to your own self-interest, and then we get to the point of resistance, you don't want the magistrate say, saying, oh, it's you, it figures, right? Oh, it's you, it figures. Rather, we ought to be the best most law-abiding citizens, and th- until we get to the tripping point, and until we get to the point where we, we can't go any further, because no human authority is absolute. What does the First Amendment actually say? So we know from the Declaration that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. The Declaration of Independence, to use the common parlance, is a creationist document. It's a creationist document. And notice, and this is another thing, if does the evolutionary process endow us with inalienable anything? No, right? How can a blind evolutionary mechanistic process bestow anything on you? It cannot. The First Amendment, as I mentioned in the previous talk, uh, says this, Congress shall make no law. Turns out that Congress is the only entity that is capable of violating the First Amendment. The modern idea, all right, the modern idea of um, how we view the establishment of religion clause didn't come into effect until 1947. Now, I, I pointed out in the previous talk that the stage was set for this abuse shortly after the war between the states. But so the 13th and 14th Amendment were put into the Constitution. And at that point, you had amendments that applied to the states and the federal government was the guarantor that the states not misbehave. But there was a a long tradition, a long part of our unwritten Constitution in our nation, north and south, that prevented that um, prevented those amendments from being abused in a grotesque way. Right? So it was initially the 14th, 14th Amendment simply was applied in those areas that it spoke of directly. The due process, equal protection clauses were designed to protect freed, um, freed slaves in um, the South. And that's how it was applied. It wasn't until 1947 that the modern view of the establishment of religion clause began. And it began with the Everson versus Board of Education of Ewing in 47, where the court initiated the current separationist approach to the establishment of religion clause. On the way to reaching its decision, the Supreme Court held that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment applied the First Amendment's prescriptions against establishment to the states. So that didn't happen. This is uh, from, I'm quoting from uh, the Heritage Guide to the Constitution that was uh, edited. It's a big volume. It was edited by Edwin Meese, who was the Attorney General under Ronald uh, Reagan. So it wasn't, until, it wasn't until 1947 that the Supreme Court of the United States said that the establishment, the prohibition of establishment clause has to be applied to the states in a rigorous manner such that no element of the Christian religion can be promulgated, you know, promulgated at a state level. And of course, the battleground has usually been uh, the public schools. This interpretation in 47, there's a a time delay. There's a time lag on all these things. 
This led to the banning of prayer and Bible reading in the public schools in 1962. 1962. I was nine years old at the time, and I remember the the uh, the day uh, growing up in government school. I remember the days beginning with prayer. I remember the days beginning with devotions. Um, And this was in the government school. In fact, in the 19th century, the reason the Catholic parochial school system started was because the public schools in America were Protestant, right? The evangelical Protestant. um, In Protestant schools, the public schools, they use the King James version of the Bible and not the Roman Catholic Douay version of the Bible. In the Protestant public schools, they used prayer. They they prayed, but they wouldn't pray in a Roman Catholic way. And uh, they also used uh, Protestant catechisms. Now, R.L. Dabney, who was Stonewall Jackson's chaplain in his magnificent essay on secular education, he died in 1899. But when the common schools, as they were then called, the public schools were getting started, first getting off the ground, Dabney said Christians must prepare themselves for the following results. He said this in the 19th century. All prayers, catechisms, and Bibles will ultimately be driven out of the schools. And we read that, and we say... There were catechisms in the public schools. There are hardly any catechisms in Christian private schools now. Right? Right? Uh, but they had Protestant catechisms, Protestant version of the Bible, Protestant uh, teachers, and very open about their faith. Well, that, that did not get removed until 1962. That didn't get removed until 1962. And it got removed based on a decision made in 1947. The dissent um, from a a 1985 case, uh, and the dissent was uh, written by uh, Justice Rehnquist, who just recently passed away. The dissent in Wallace versus Jaffrey in 1985 is to the point. Rehnquist argued rightly that the First Amendment only, quote, forbade the establishment of a national religion and forbade preference among religious sects or denominations. So the First Amendment, according to Rehnquist, and he's arguing this in 85, 1985, not 1885, 1985, he said, the only thing the First Amendment prohibits is for the national government to take sides between Presbyterians and Baptists. Right? That's what, that's what the First Amendment is talking about. But these tensions were with us from the beginning, even though, um, it, it's, it's really remarkable how important precedent is in a common law system. Uh, 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 Dr. Lilbach, in his talk, talked about the, uh, the, the Protestant reformational impetus in common law, but there were, the roots go far earlier than that. that was, what he said was quite true, but common law was established by King Alfred in, um, uh, at the turn of the millennium, and King Alfred, the the previous millennium, not, and uh, and he established the law of Deuteronomy as the law of England. And the law of Deuteronomy is a case law system; it's a precedent system. So, and and this is a very important distinction to make. Justinian law, pagan law, attempts to uh, aspires to deity, and pagan law tries to anticipate every eventuality and have a mass massive code that will give you the regulation that will apply to this situation. Common law is a case law system, which means that you deal with things as they come up. So um, in if you read through Deuteronomy, you'll see a particular case and you wonder, you should wonder, what's the story behind that law? There's, there's got to be a story behind that law. Um, and then the English common law was the same thing. So instead of trying to anticipate every eventuality, common law works this way. In, in the year 900, uh, 956, there was a widow lady and her dog ate the neighbor's chicken. Okay. And they had this dispute, came before the judge. The judge adjudicated it and made a decision about the dog eating the chicken and the lady had to pay. And then 20 years later, there was a guy's bull who gored the neighbor's dog. And the second judge looked at the previous decision, 
um, got the basic, um, to use the Westminster Confessions phrase, the general equity of the case and applied the principle of that case to the next case. Now, for the tidy minded, this is impossible because it's far too ad hoc. Right. You're just you're not trying to anticipate every possible infraction. You're just dealing with things as they come up. And so what happened was we had this common law system and we still do have this common law system, which means that once we have a precedent going, it's very difficult to turn it around. And so consequently, the pattern that was established at the founding is a, a, a pattern that that gave a great deal of inertia and it has not been effectively turned to to where it's going in a, another clear direction until this last generation. So we are in the tail end of the generation that turned the aircraft carrier. Now, this is not to say that there weren't tensions and problems and conflicts about this before. There, there were. In other words, the aircraft carrier got turned for a reason. It wasn't like this decision in 1947 just sort of erupted out of nowhere. So there were reasons for it. There were things that the founders should have anticipated. Um, the, the Presbyterians... I think, uh, who wrote to Washington wishing that the lordship of Jesus Christ had been acknowledged in the Constitution, I think were right. And I think that they probably ought not to have been so easily um, reassured by George Washington's exemplary behavior um, as, the, as the first president. Well, why? Not to challenge anything that was said by Dr. Lilback about Washington's behavior, because I think he was exactly right about that. But here's the problem. Washington was mortal. Washington's going to die. And this is one of the places where I think we should have retained our suspicions, kept our suspicions up. So where does the phrase wall of separation come from? This apparently immortal phrase, wall of separation, comes from a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to a group of Baptists in uh, a town called Danbury, the letter to the Danbury Baptists. These Baptists were worried about state encroachments. Now, remember what I said the other day. Uh, The Baptists, um, God bless them, had reason to be worried about state encroachments. You remember the case, Patrick Henry wasn't a Baptist, but Patrick Henry had defended the the Baptist minister who'd been flogged by the Anglicans in Virginia simply for being a Baptist. So the, the Baptists had been a persecuted group, and they were understandably jumpy, and they were concerned about the free exercise thereof clause. Right. Are we going to be allowed to continue the free exercise? Jefferson, in his response to them, referred to this wall of separation between uh, these two spheres of life. Now, even Jefferson, who Jefferson wasn't there at the Constitutional Convention. He was not um, he was not a player in the, the making of the Constitution, but he was the primary person who drafted the Declaration of Independence, and he was the one who said that we're endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. And as you've heard before, Jefferson is not uh, a Christian in any orthodox sense of the word, but he's not a hard deist either. Right? He's not a hard deist either. He believes that rights come from God. So Jefferson writes to them and uses this phrase, wall of separation. And over the course of time, especially in the last generation, we're under a full court press to keep all mention or even the slightest whiff of the Christian faith out of the public sphere. The ACLU and other groups like them, People for the American Way, are trying to hunt down every obscure county seal that might have a cross on it or some sort of indication that we were at one point a Christian nation. And in our foundational documents and covenant commitments still are. Let me say that again. We are not a Christian nation in terms of our vibrant, robust faith, because we're scattered and disoriented and we don't know what's going on. But in terms of our our fundamental covenant commitments, we are still a Christian nation. But we are under a full court press, and they're trying to make this phrase, wall of separation, into an absolute, you know, we just can't have any, any foolishness from you Christians on this. But there are inescapable questions that we have to deal with. Despite intensive cleanup efforts by the ACLU, and there's a lot of uh, heritage that they've got to 
clean up, there are still many memorials around which remind us of the older order of things. For example, let me quote from the preamble of the Constitution of the state of Idaho. This is from the preamble from the Idaho State Constitution. And Idaho, I think, was formed as a state in 1898, I think is when it was. So this is late in the 19th century. The preamble of the uh, of our Constitution says this. We, the people of the state of Idaho, grateful to Almighty God for our freedom, to secure its blessings and promote our common welfare, do establish this Constitution. We, the people of the state of Idaho, grateful to Almighty God for our freedom. Where does our freedom come from? It does not come from the state of Idaho. It does not come from the federal government. It does not come from the evolutionary process. Our fundamental law says we are grateful to Almighty God for our freedom, which is precisely true. Later, the same Constitution says this, and and this is... uh, There's an important distinction that I want to make here in a moment. All political power is inherent in the people. Government is instituted for their equal protection and benefit, and they have the right to alter, reform, or abolish the same whenever they may deem it necessary. Huh. Let me go over that again. I wonder what this means in the original Greek. That's where we usually take refuge when we encounter something that we don't want to deal with. Well, let's go. Let's do word studies. All political powers inherent in the people. Government is instituted for their equal protection and benefit, and they have the right to alter, reform, or abolish the same whenever they may deem it necessary. So when the people want to say enough of that, or I've had it with that, or no, we're going to alter, reform, abolish, whatever. We're going to abolish it, do whatever we want. The people may do this whenever they want. Okay, They may do this whenever they want. Now, here's a problem. If that's the case, right? If that's the case, how do, you, how do we reconcile this with what was said in the pre- preamble? Grateful to God, Almighty God for our freedoms, but political power is inherent in the people. We're talking in the second instance about the mechanism. Um, What is the ultimate source of freedom? It's a gift from God. Our right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness is a gift from God and cannot be taken away from us by anyone, including the people, because God gives it. So this is not an idolatry of the people. This is a legal theory that goes back to, um, to, uh, I'll, I'll refer to two great works that came out of the Reformation. One is Vindicii Contra Tyrannos, uh, Vindication Against Tyrants, which was written by an anonymous Huguenot in the 1500s. It's a wonderful, masterful work of political theory. And uh, the other one is Lex Rex, written by Samuel Rutherford, who is one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly and a magnificent political theorist. He shows throughout the Old Testament that, for example, when David was anointed king, David was anointed king by Samuel. But David was not installed as king until he was elected by the people at Hebron. In other words, it was not, whenever we think of monarchy, we think of the divine right of uh, kings in the sort of absolutist sense, this, you know, in uh, France before the revolution. But that's, that's not biblical monarchy. Uh, the kings were elected by the people. And Rutherford shows over and over again that this was a, the people, the, the popular suffrage of the people was the mechanism God had used to reveal his will to the People And of course, since the, the people are sinners, just like rulers are sinners, they could become disobedient and rebellious just like anybody else can. So you need to have checks on them as well. So you want to have the fundamental law arising, the, the fundamental structure of government arising from the people, but they, but there's no desire to give them these remotes so they can change the government on a whim. You want check and restraints and breaks and that sort of thing. On them as well. So these two citations placed together bring us to the issue before us. This was the same issue that confronted our fathers in the church when they faithfully preached during our successful war for independence. And then later there was a subsequent unsuccessful war for independence. In other words, uh, just not to uh, open up a whole new subject, but um, if the people have the right to 
alter, reform, or abolish the same whenever they may deem it necessary, does that include the right of the people of Idaho to secede from the Union? Well, yeah, if they want. If they deem it necessary, they they do. And then there was a war fought over that. The, the first war, the war for independence from Great Britain, was a war for secession, right? All, all 13 colonies seceded. They all seceded. And then there was a second war of secession, and this one was unsuccessful. The message today is that Christian people have the same moral obligations as they did back then, whether in the 19th century or the the 18th century. Those moral obligations include the duty of abolishing any government which pays lip service to such words, but banishes gratitude, outlaws the name of Almighty God, and hates the very idea of Christian liberty. Under the circumstances, we deem it necessary to make changes. This is not a rebellious act. This is not sedition. Our state constitution recognizes our full and legitimate authority to do this. Now, this document is obviously a subordinate document to Scripture, but still, it's the law of our state, and it would be hard to be in rebellion by doing what it said, right? How can you disobey by obeying? Right? Let me ask that, press that again. How can you disobey by obeying? But the earlier qualification, and this is where we get to the practical application, the early qualification has to be remembered. How shall we go about accomplishing this? By insurrection, by riots, by individuals taking it upon themselves to establish their own tiny republics in the Montana mountains or in a trailer park east of Houston somewhere? You know, the little <laughs> republic. I, I saw a great cartoon once. Uh, it said the caption was, this happens every year around tax time. And there's a guy sitting out in his front lawn with a shotgun and a little sign that says Republic of Doug. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, this sort of um, that sort of factionalism and ornery, I would describe it as ornery individualism, far from being a, a careful and biblical and reformational challenge of the system, is simply one more indicator or symptom of the, of the problem that got us into this mess. Remember the talks about the Great Awakening and how individualism got into the church. Right? How did individualism get into the church? By means of excessive revivalism, not opposed to a genuine revival, a movement of the Holy Spirit, not opposed to reformation and revival at all. But revivalism, where everybody is pressed to make an individual choice, me and Jesus, as Tom T. Hall said, got our own thing going, me and Jesus got it all worked out. So everybody goes off and they do their own individual thing. The individualism that is afflicting us in the civil realm is individualism that was pioneered and perfected in the church. All right? That's the problem. The church is the problem. So Christians ought to have nothing whatever to do with that kind of sedition, that kind of craziness, that kind of... um, Lone Ranger Rebellion, before anyone opened fire at Lexington and Concord. And this is a very important point. Before anyone had opened fire at Lexington or Concord, there had been several centuries of ongoing reformation and revival in the church. Before Lexington and Concord, there had been several centuries, I believe, of God-glorifying obedience. Again, not perfectionism, not utopia, not grand and glorious. There, was all, there were all sorts of messes. But generally speaking, when you look at the state of the church today, overall, and the state of the church then, overall, there was a definite, marked development of maturity, submission to authority, obedience, confessional adherence, and it, the church was healthy in many ways. A godly outcome in the war for independence had several centuries of preconditions. We cannot have the liberty fruit without the liberty tree. We cannot have the liberty fruit without the liberty tree. So what do we do? Before declaring the crown rights of the Lord Jesus to the unbelieving civil magistrates, which we have an obligation and a duty to do, We have a much more pressing and challenging job before us, and that is to proclaim the crown rights of the Lord Jesus to the church. 
right? That's the problem. How on earth, why on earth would we Christians try to mobilize in order to get the civil magistrate to submit to the authority of the Lord Jesus when it's not against the law for us to do that in the churches, but we're not doing it. This, this is the, this is just the, the, the center of the business, the center of the problem. Because of individualism and because of the shunting of the church off to the side, what has happened is that you have uh, a large number of evangelicals in America today who amount to a special interest group. We've, we tend to vote in the same general directions. We tend to have the same uh, political sympathies. Conservative, Bible-believing evangelicals are identifiable and have been identified by politicos as a uh, group with common interests. And so it, when, as soon as they make that identification, it's about 15 minutes before they're pitching it to us. Right. And and when they pitch it to us, how do we talk to Washington? We're, let's, let's say we're conservative, reformed, evangelical Christians who believe the Bible, don't believe we ought to be uh, aborting children, don't believe in homosexual marriage, don't believe in any of that stuff. And there are millions of us. How do we talk to Washington? How do we talk to Washington? In a previous era, right, in a previous generation, the leaders of the church would have just met and then either, depending on when in history it was, the archbishop would have gone to talk to the king or the assembly would have sent a delegation or John Knox would have gone to have a conference with Mary, Queen of Scots. And she generally came out in on the short end of those exchanges. So you'd have a representative of the church speaking on behalf of the church as a churchman. Right now, we are absolutely prohibited from doing that. And so consequently, what we do is we speak to Washington on the same principles and by the same means that gun rights advocates do. Big Tobacco does the National Organization of Women. does. We are a pressure group. We hire lobbyists. We are a pressure group and we hire lobbyists. And this is this is how our argument goes. Look. This is what we would like, and there are a lot of us. That's the argument. No one, I mean absolutely no one, goes to Washington and says, thus says the Lord God Almighty, King of heaven and earth, and then speaks the word of God. And I am speaking on behalf of the church in the name of Jehovah, Lord of battles. What would happen to someone who spoke that way? All right? Let me, and you might say, and this is ironic because the secularists would be uh, uh, more, probably more, most, more likely to be afraid of that sort of thing. That person who, who tried to speak that way would get in trouble in the church for speaking that way. How dare you act like we're the church? How dare you act like God has established this realm and we have the authority and the marching, uh, marching orders from the Lord Jesus to speak the word of God to the unbelieving magistrate. Who do you think you are? All we are are little individual citizens in the secular republic, and we believe a certain way because, well, actually, I'm not going to admit in public that I believe this way because I read my Bible. I, it lines up with m- my reading of the Bible, but I came to these conclusions anyway, independent of my reading of the Bible, because if I Admit that I read my Bible and then vote that way, then someone's going to accuse me of violating the wall of separation between church and state. So this is our problem. We cannot, and, uh, uh, when, when I look at the state of the nation and the state of our circumstances and look at all this, I, I believe that the circumstances are more than um, ripe, more, more than ripe enough for God to raise up um, men to challenge secular, unbelieving, idolatrous authority. The problem is we can't take the speck out of the civil government's eye before we get the beam out of our own. There were women in pulpits before there were women in combat. We led the way. There were people stretching the scriptures making the scriptures into a living document before they were doing that to the Constitution. 
We led the way. We pioneered the way. This is why scripture says that judgment begins with the household of God. And this is why liturgical reformation, doctrinal reformation, um, stirring the people of God up so that they they realize we have to deal with things here first. We need to have a reformed understanding, reformed world and life view. And I'm not using... I'm not using the word reformed here in a denominational sense. We have to have a reformational understanding of what the task of the church is. When when we look at how Christians worship, I I remember uh, talking to someone who lived in the D.C. area, and we were talking about uh, a man who's back there doing good work. I, I probably would vote exactly the same way he would and would urge everybody to do exactly what he says as a lobbyist, but he was a lobbyist for conservative traditional Christian values. And I asked this person, my question was, yes, I'm glad he's there pushing congressmen and legislators to do this stuff that he's asking them to do. But how does this lobbyist worship? What are worship services like in believing churches or in the D.C. area? And all these people who are advocating our positions, traditional values and so forth, how do they worship? Now, you know, you, those of you who've got Winnebago's and have been around, um, you, or you may have gotten around another way, you know what it's like to walk into a strange worship service and sort of be on the edge of your seat, right? What are they going to do? How are they going to act? How are they going to behave? Are, are, are they going to be acknowledging the crown rights of the Lord Jesus? Are they going to be worshiping him in the beauty of holiness, are they, is this something that is going to be taken seriously in any other way other than there are a lot of these people and they vote a certain way? In other words, I believe that the secular politicians take the evangelical swing vote very seriously indeed, but they take us they don't take us any more seriously than they would if there were this many of us and we were all really into ham radio. There's no moral authority in what we do because we're not speaking in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus. So I believe that we, the circumstances are such that we pray God that he would stir up his church and do something magnificent in his church. But if he doesn't do something in the church, we will be in no position to retard or slow down or reform anything in the public square. So there is a separation of church and state. So before the churchmen take it upon themselves to clean up the mess in the state sphere, why don't we clean up the mess in our own sphere? When we clean up the mess in our own sphere, I'm not saying that this doesn't need to be done, and I'm not saying the church has nothing to say. I think the church has the responsibility to say these things to the state. We're just not qualified. It says in Galatians 6.1, if a brother is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Let's not just apply this to individuals. The spiritual person ought to uh, correct the unspiritual one. You ought ought not to have an unspiritual person correcting an unspiritual person. Let's apply, apply this to governments as well. Let the spiritual church correct the unspiritual civil magistrate. But if the church is as unspiritual as the civil magistrate is. If the church, and I'm talking about the broader church, not just our little sect in it, but the broader church, if the broader church, large portions of the broader church are leading the way in calling for homosexual marriage, and they are, and some evangelical churches or evangelical churches as of 20 years ago are wobbling on it, and they are, why don't we address that first? Remember the nature of man, and we should bring the gospel to bear in the church first. The gospel needs to be brought to bear in the church first. We need to work it out in the church first. And then, having done so, we remember all the lessons of the founding fathers where where the, the government acknowledges that they need, as we take Washington's assumption, Washington acknowledged that they needed prophetic reminders and calls from the church as the church to uh, return to uh, a right way of living, a right way of believing, a right way of trusting God. Remember the nature of man. Here is Madison from Federalist number 51. Federalist 51. This is Madison, and this is, I think, a very 
shrewd statement of the nature of man. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? What is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty is this lies in, the great difficulty lies in this you must first enable the government to control the governed and in the next place oblige it to control itself that's the problem in a nutshell you must enable the government to govern the governed and in the next place oblige it not suggest to it but oblige it to control itself this is apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, an absolute impossibility. All right, let me say that again. Accomplishing this task, enabling the government to control effectively, govern effectively, and enabling it to be restrained is an absolute impossibility apart from the grace of God. Now, who's entrusted with proclaiming that grace? Well, the church. The church is obliged to proclaim that to its own people, establish disciple of the people so that they grow up and mature in it. And then from that position of strength and maturity and wisdom, speak counsel and guidance to the civil magistrate. If men don't understand this, then they don't understand the nature of government and they don't understand the nature of liberty. And they will soon find themselves with a great deal of the former government and not very much of the latter liberty. If you don't understand government and liberty, you will get a lot of government and not very much liberty. I'll conclude with the words of John Adams, who who gave us a, a, a very succinct statement of what our constitutional frame of government requires. John Adams put it this way. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Think about this for a minute. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. If you have a nation of 300 million pleasure addicts, hedonistic um, um, pleasure worshipers, people pursuing happiness as they define it in terms of their sensory nerve endings. If you've got people chasing after the almighty dollar, personal peace and prosperity, 300 million of those people, John Adams said, and he's right, our constitution is not adequate for the governance of such a people. It cannot function. It, this form of government can only function when the people are right with God. Not every last person born again, but where the people in the main understand their responsibilities to worship God and are discipled and trained in that by the church. The state can't do that. Only the church can do it, but the church isn't doing it. And that's where our problem lies. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the opportunity to think and reflect on these things, and we commit it all back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full series, Secular Jihad in America, now available on Canon+. Plus.